Dr. J.I. Packer talks about um, a time when he was walking across the university campus with a colleague of his who was a professor on that campus. And uh, this particular man had been denied uh, academic advancement because of his commitment to the Lord. But uh, he said to Dr. Packer, you know, it, it really doesn't matter because he said, I have known God and they have not. Uh, when I first read that, the uh, first thing that occurred to me is that many people might think that sounds very uh, pompous and, and almost arrogant unless they understand what it means to know God. As the, um, as the Lord tells us in his high priestly prayer, this is eternal life that they may know you and your son whom you have sent. So it is possible to know God in that personal and an intimate way, even though you may have come here this morning and he is to you the unknown God. Now, will you, will you turn with me to the 17th chapter of Acts? And we want to look at an occasion in the Apostle Paul's life where he did confront some people with the knowledge of God who had no knowledge of that God. It's the story of Paul's debate with the philosophers in Athens. Acts 17, verse 16. Paul had some days to wait at Athens for Silas and Timothy to arrive. And while he was there, his soul was exasperated beyond endurance at the sight of a city so completely idolatrous. Paul, as you know, had been escorted down to Athens by, uh, by some of his friends from Berea and left there. Athens was not on his program. He had been called to Macedonia to preach, and uh, Athens was in Achaia, another province of Greece. And apparently he didn't feel uh, free to, uh, to make proclamation of the, of the gospel. He was waiting for Silas and Timothy. Luke, you know, was up in Philippi. And as he waited in Athens, he did what you or I would do in that great city. He went sightseeing. And uh, he wandered among the buildings and the statues and the altars. He saw the beauty of the city of Athens because it was, uh, it was a very beautiful city then, crowned by the Acropolis and the Parthenon, one of the architectural wonders of the world. But uh, Paul saw something else that a casual observer might not see. He saw under the surface, underneath all of the art and culture, and beauty and architectural splendor of Athens, he saw the emptiness of people's hearts. And that's why he was so incensed. It wasn't idolatry per se that, uh, that troubled him. It was what idolatry did to people. He saw the emptiness of, of their lives. Athens, you know, was the intellectual center of the world at that time. They had lost most of their political power, but they were much like a university city today, center of culture and art and uh, philosophy, and on the surface everything looked good, but Paul realized that under the surface things were not good at all. And I uh, am convinced that's the way we ought to look at secular society. I think so often even we Christians read People magazine and look at the People section in Times, and we, uh, 
We see the beautiful people and the way they live and the way they dress and the way they eat and the kind of cars that they drive and the sort of vocations that they have, and, and we want it. We want to be like them. And what we don't see is that down under the surface there is a, a great emptiness and a quest for something else. And that's what the Apostle saw. So he, uh, as Luke tells us, felt compelled to discuss the matter with the Jews in the synagogue as well as, the, as with God-fearing Gentiles, and he even argued daily in the open marketplace with those who passed by. He first went to the synagogue because he felt that of all places there he would find people who had the same attitude toward idolatry. The Jews abhorred it. And uh, he also talked to the God-fearing Gentiles there in the, in the synagogue who had aligned themselves with Jewish thought, but he discovered even there there was an indifference to the need around them. No one seemed to be particularly troubled. They were so inured and so accustomed to human need they just uh, overlooked it. And so... Paul took his message out into the streets, which is where we ought to take ours. He went out into the marketplace, and he began to talk to people there where the need was. The marketplace of the Agora was just a couple of blocks northwest of the Acropolis, and it was a center of social and commercial and intellectual life in Athens in those days. There were, It was a marketplace. There were stalls there for the sale of uh, fruits and vegetables and meats, but interspersed with the stalls were uh, altars and images and statues of various types and temples, some of which have been reconstructed or, and are there today if you visit Athens. And around the outside of the marketplace, there were a series of covered porches, porticos, stoas, they were called, where philosophers taught. So there was a sort of Hyde Park atmosphere, people milling about uh, buying things and selling and, and uh, politicians stumping and philosophers debating with one another and students making speeches. It was sort of a circus atmosphere. And Paul uh, evidently got out his soapbox and began to preach on the street or else he engaged some of the philosophers in debate. It didn't take long, Luke tells us, before... <clears throat> He ran afoul of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who came across, uh, across him. And some of them remarked, what is this seed picker trying to say? That's uh, actually the word is translated idle babbler in the New American Standard. Uh, the seed pickers were little sparrows that hopped about the marketplace picking up scraps of, of meat and seeds. And... Uh, that's the way they thought of Paul. He didn't seem to be very well thought through. They didn't believe. Sort of an eclectic, picking up bits and pieces of information here and here and there, just like these little birds that hop around the marketplace. They made fun of him. But uh, other of the philosophers said he seems to be trying to proclaim some more gods to us and outlandish ones at that, for Paul was actually proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. There are some who think that uh, those who heard him believed Paul was speaking about two gods, Jesus, or Jesus, and Anastasis, which is the word for uh, resurrection in Greek, and they thought perhaps he was talking about a god and his female consort and was teaching some sort of foreign or strange system of, of gods, a new theology. For myself, I don't think Paul was that difficult to understand. He usually uh, 
usually had things well in mind, and his presentation was very orderly and clear, and I think they understood only too well what he was talking about. He was talking about Jesus who rose from the dead. And so they believed that he was advocating a new, a new deity. These uh, two groups of philosophers were the best represented philosophers in Athens at that time, or this most accurately represents the type of philosophical thinking that was current in, in Athens. There were the Epicureans who based their philosophy on the teachings of a man named Epicurus who had lived about 300 years before Paul went to Athens. And today, when we think of an Epicurean, we think of someone who likes good food. But uh, actually, they're much more uh, involved in their thinking. They uh, were agnostic. They didn't know if the gods existed or not. If they did, they lived way off somewhere on Mount Olympus or some other location and had absolutely no contact with, with the world of humans. Life was very chancy and iffy. You never knew what was going to happen. The gods were not in control of, of anything. And the end of life was simply to be annihilated. So their philosophy was eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. They um, believed that you have to go for all the gusto because you only go around once. That was basically their, their approach to life. The other group were called Stoics because their teacher, Zeno, taught in the Stoas, these porches. And they gained their name from that uh, location. They were just the opposite of the Epicureans. They believed that the gods controlled everything. Everything was fated and fixed and, and determined. And life was very uh, grim and hard and harsh because the gods were, were uh, cruel and uncaring. So the best you could do was grin and bear it. Our word stoic has come over into English, meaning that, that sort of thing. Vince Lombardi's famous uh, dictum, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, is basically stoicism. That's all it is. You may, when, when you were a kid in high school, you probably learned uh, Hindley's uh, poem, Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. That's uh, stoicism. It's all it is. And these were the competing and conflicting philosophies that uh, Paul encountered. In thinking about this the, this past week, it occurred to me that if you don't have God in your life and you don't know the God of the Bible, those are really the only two philosophies that, that are viable. Either you uh, decide that you're going to make pleasure the chief end and you go for all the gusto, or uh, you decide that life is tough and you just have to be tougher. Uh, people who have analyzed these philosophies have said that both engendered a sort of pride. The Epicureans had pride of pleasure. They took pleasure in how much alcohol they could hold or how many sexual conquests they could, they could make. In any case, that uh, engendered a fierce uh, pride in what they were able to do. On the other hand, the Stoics had pride in their character, in their toughness, in their ability to make their way through life un unscathed. So it was that sort of hard, cold, cynical environment that Paul was facing in the marketplace when he preached Jesus and the resurrection. Recall. 
very bright, very intelligent people, well-read, well-thought-out, very sophisticated. And uh, they heard Paul preach. Some of them said, Nah, he's just uh, like these little birds that hop around the marketplace and pick up scraps of food and, and little bits of grain. He's a seed picker. He's picked up ideas here and there and thrown together a, a philosophy, and they just wrote him off. Others said, no, he's uh, preaching strange gods. Some have thought because Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection that they believed he was preaching, he was talking about two gods, Jesus or Jesus, and anastasis, which is the Greek word for uh, resurrection. And since anastasis is a feminine noun, they thought perhaps Paul was talking about a god and goddess. Jesus and anastasis. But I don't think so, because I think Paul was always very clear in his preaching. He was, it would be very difficult to misunderstand Paul. I think rather they believed that he was preaching an unknown god who rose from the dead. They'd never heard the name of Jesus before. Completely new to them. I remember once uh, Bob Reberts and I had a Young Life Club back in uh, in uh, Los Alamos, California. And after the club meeting, Bob had spoken. And after the club meeting, a, a young man came up to us. And he said, tell me, uh, this uh, guy, Jesus, he was a Jew, wasn't he? And Bob said, yes. And he said, and they uh, they did something to him. What was it? They hung him? And Bob said, yes, that's right, they hung him on a cross. And what struck me is that this young man had never heard the name of Jesus in any real sense. He just didn't understand. And that's what Paul was confronting in, in Athens. So they took hold of him and conducted him to their council, the, the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a sort of uh, philosophical debating society. They had no legal authority. They were charged with the responsibility for morals and religion in the city of Athens, but uh, they were not a, an official uh, legal society. They just loved to debate. They were called the Areopagus, the Areopagus, because they met on a little hill. If you go to Athens today, they'll point out the Areopagus to you. It's, uh, the word simply means uh, the hill of Ares or Mars Hill, and, and it's a little outcropping of rock just a little bit to the northwest of the Parthenon where these philosophers met to debate. It was a very prestigious body of men, about 50 of them, who were um, the scholars of their day. And uh, they bring Paul into this council, and they ask him, may we know what this new teaching of yours really is? You talk of matters which sound startling to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. <clears throat> and then Luke adds the footnote, for all the Athenians and even foreign visitors to Athens had an obsession for any novelty and would spend their whole time talking about or listening to anything new. Literally, it's newer. They'd heard it all. Athens was the city of, of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and, and Zeno and Epicurus. They'd heard every conceivable philosophy. They were given to novelty. They wanted to hear something Something new. It was just an indication of their of their quest. They were looking for something. With all of their wisdom, they hadn't they hadn't found what they were searching for. So Paul 
got to his feet in the middle of their council and began. Luke has such a straightforward way of saying things, I'm sure Paul must have been scared out of his wits. I would have been. Gentlemen of Athens, my own eyes tell me that, that you're in all respects an extremely religious people. For as I made my way here and there and looked at your shrines, I particularly noticed one altar on which were inscribed the words, To an unknown God. It is this God whom you're worshiping in ignorance that I'm here to proclaim to you. God who made the world and all that is in it, being Lord of both heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he ministered to by human hands as though he had need of anything, seeing that he is the one who gives to all men life and breath and everything else. From one forefather he has created every race of men to live over the face of the whole earth. He has determined the times of their existence and the limits of their habitation so that they may search for God in the hope that they may feel for Him. The word means to grope in the dark and find Him. Yes, even though He is not far from any one of us, indeed, it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. Some of your poets have expressed this in other words, for we are indeed His children. If then we are the children of God, we ought not to imagine God in terms of gold or silver or stone contrived by human art or imagination. Now, while it is true that God has overlooked the days of ignorance, He now commends, commands all men everywhere to repent, to change their minds. For He has fixed a day on which He will judge the whole world in justice by the standard of a man whom He has appointed. That this is so, He has guaranteed to all men by raising this man from the dead. And at that point, he lost his audience. Uh, Luke, uh, in the book of Acts, has gathered together three samples of Paul's preaching for us. In Acts 13, there is a sample of his teaching to Jews in a synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. In Acts 20, an example of his preaching to uh, believers in the church in Ephesus. And in Acts 17, a, a sample of his preaching to uh, to non-Christians. I'm certain this is a summary. I think Paul must have said much more than Luke included. This is simply a shorthand uh, report of the gist of, of his message. His point of contact is their idolatry. Gentlemen, he says, my eyes tell me that, that you're quite religious. You're given to spiritual things, literally. He uses the word from which our word demon comes from. They um, worship not demons as we know them, but spiritual beings, which they call demons. And it's this word that, that Paul uses. The city of Athens was crammed with altars and images and statues to other gods. He had ransacked the theologies of all the nations of the world to bring together the very best of their gods, best from their standpoint. And they had erected altars all over Athens to these gods. Writers of this uh, period tell us that it was easier to find a god in the city of Athens than it was to find a man. You needed a yellow pages in order to locate the god that, uh, that you were worshiping. Some indication of the extent of their, of their search. When you forego the one god of the universe, it takes an infinite number of gods to fill his shoes. They had looked everywhere for some god to satisfy them in and they had found nothing. 
But notice how Paul argues. He says the real evidence of their spiritual quest is not the fact that they had many gods, but that they had one particular altar to an unknown god. Notice the conjunction with which verse 23 begins. For as I made my way here and there and looked at your shrines, I particularly noticed one altar on which were inscribed the words to the unknown God. It was the existence of this one altar that indicated to Paul the depth of, of their search because they had, they had tried to find God everywhere and finally had just given up and had an altar there to an unknown God. And there's an interesting history behind this uh, altar. Some of the uh, other Greek writers of this period refer to altars, a number of altars in Athens, to an unknown god. And this is the background. About 600 years before Paul came to uh, Athens, a plague struck the city and and just decimated the the population. They uh, tried to find out which god they had offended, and they propitiated all the gods in the city, but... uh, It didn't work. The plague raged on. There was a member of the Areopagus, his name was Nicaeus, who suggested that they go to Crete and find a a well-known prophet there, his name was Epimenides, and bring him to Athens in order to tell them which god they should uh, satisfy. And so they did that. They sent off to Crete and they brought this man, whom, by the way, Paul refers to in Titus as a prophet. He quotes one of Epimenides' Uh, poems, and he says this man was a prophet, extraordinary man. Uh, Plato and Socrates and others refer to him as an inspired man. This thing apparently really happened. It's not a myth. So Epimenides came to Athens, and he suggested that they turn loose a band of black and white sheep, and wherever, wherever a sheep lay down, they were to sacrifice the animal to the nearest god. Wherever an altar was, they were to take that animal there, and it was to be sacrificed to that god. The problem was, in some cases, the animals lay down where there was no altar. And so they simply erected an altar to a god without a name, an unknown god. And uh, evidently there were a number of these altars scattered around the Acropolis, which uh, remained on into Paul's day, and it's that particular altar that Paul saw and he referred to. Now, according to the, to the writers of, of Paul's day and before, the plague was actually stayed. When the animals were sacrificed on this altar to an unknown god, God heard. He answered their prayer. And the plague was averted. Now, that's strange, isn't it? The question, I often hear the question, does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? In this case, He did. He did. Even in their ignorance, He answered their prayer. They cried out to him, to an unknown God. They did not know his name, but they knew he must be out there somewhere. And they cried out to him and sacrificed to him, and he healed their nation. He lifted the the plague. And this is all background for this story. I think in the providence of God, he he had made these arrangements so that when Paul walked to the city of Athens, there was a point of contact. You see how wise and astute the apostle is. He says, the real sign of your hunger for God is this this altar here on which you have for 600 years offered sacrifices to an unknown God. Now, he says, what is unknown to you, I'm going to declare. And he begins to preach the gospel to them. You campus crusade people will be interested to know that basically he uses the four spiritual laws. (laughs) He begins with God. 
who loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It is this God whom you are worshiping in ignorance that I am here to proclaim to you. God, who made the world and all that is in it, being Lord of both heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands. And I think he probably pointed up to the Parthenon, which is just a couple of hundred yards off to the southeast of, of the Agora when he, when he uttered these words. God doesn't live in that beautiful, dwelling, uh, beautiful house up there, nor is he ministered to by human hands. And with that, he sounded the death knell of, of pagan worship. He said, oh, this endless round of propitiating gods, offering up bloody sacrifices to all of the gods is over. It doesn't have to be served by human hands not impressed by efforts to propitiate him. He doesn't need to be satisfied. He's already satisfied. That's his point. He cares about you. Most pagan religions are designed to get God to care about people. Paul says you don't have to do that. He already cares about you. You don't have to give him anything. He's the giver of every good and, and perfect gift. It's always so sad to me when I find non-Christians who have a totally distorted concept of God so distorted that it keeps them from knowing God. They think of Him as harsh and cruel and, and demanding and unloving. But they need to understand, as these Athenians needed to understand, that God loved them and He wanted to give. Secondly, He says in verse 26, From one forefather, He has created every race of men to live over the face of the whole earth. And with that, He did away with... With Greek uh, national pride, the Greeks believed that they had no ancestors. They had sprung from the, from the ground. Paul says, no, you have one heavenly Father and you have one earthly Father. We're all in this thing together. There's only one race in the world, and that's the human race. And God, who created all things in general, in particular created man, and determined the times of their existence and the limits of their habitation. That is, he delimited their national boundaries and he determined how long a nation shall rise, uh, how long a nation shall exist and when it will, when it will rise. I was taught in school that, that economics determines history or great men or battles. But uh, Paul says, no, behind all those events is God who's shaping history for his own ends, his own redemptive ends. As someone has said, history is his story. He's even behind the great monsters of history, the Borgias, the Hitlers, the Idi Amins of the world. He, he accepts no responsibility for their evil, but he permits them to, to come into being. He commits totalitarian governments to, to rise for a purpose because he has a greater end than freedom and liberty. The greater end is redemption. You see how Paul is arguing? He says he has determined the times of their existence, that is, the existence of nations and the limits of their habitation, so that they may search for God. The structures that are placed upon us as people in our country are there so we will grope and search for God. They are to drive men to the end of, of themselves. So they'll feel for God. The word that, that Paul uses that's translated grope or feel here means to grope about in the darkness. And it's interesting that Paul should say that of these proud, uh, intellectually arrogant Athenians with their great background of Greek classical thought. He says, you're just in darkness. You don't know anything about God. Which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that man by wisdom cannot know God. He can do marvelous things. 
He can accomplish great things technologically. He can put a man on the moon. Uh, he can build intricate computers. But he'll never find God with his mind. It's an inadequate, inappropriate instrument with which to find God. But he says if they do grope for him and feel for him, they'll find him because he's right here. He's not off on Mount Olympus. He's here. Even though he is not far from any of us, indeed, it is in him that we live and move and have our being. Some of your own prophets or poets have endorsed this in the words, for we are indeed his children. It's interesting, Paul does not quote Scripture in this particular place. He does quote Scripture from time to time, though he doesn't call it Scripture. He quotes from a number of different places. He uses the terminology of the Bible, but he doesn't call it Scripture. And here, he doesn't rely upon his argument for the nearness of God on Scripture. He could have. could have quoted Deuteronomy, as Paul does to the church in Rome. He's very near to us, in our mouth and in our heart, uh, so that we can know him. But he doesn't. He quotes a, a Greek poet, a man named, interestingly enough, Epimenides, the very man who told them to uh, turn loose the herd of, of goats. That line, in him we live and move and have our being, is from a poem that uh, exists to this day from the Cretan poet Epimenides. The uh, line reads like this. Uh, the uh, poem is put in the mouth of, of the Cretan Minos. The Cretans told Minos that Zeus, his father, was dead, and they had buried him in a tomb, and they pointed out the tomb to him. So Minos goes back to his uh, father Zeus, uh, the report of whose death has been exaggerated, and he says to Zeus, They fashioned a tomb for you, O holy one. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. You'll recognize that from Paul's quotation in Titus. He picks up another line from that poem. But you are not dead. Now, now note, this is Minus speaking to Zeus. You are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. And the second quotation is uh, the one that follows, we are indeed his children, or we are his offspring, which came from one of uh, Paul's fellow countrymen, a Cilician by the name of Aratus. Both refer to Zeus. Isn't that interesting? Not the God of the Old Testament, but Zeus. And we said, well, why would Paul do that? Why would he use a pagan God? You see how he's arguing? God's very near to us. Zeus is very near to you, as your poets have said. I was talking to Claude Levitt this past week and uh, asked him what his approach was to the trios when he first uh, went to that tribe to begin to translate Scripture and asked if he used the name for God. He said, well, our, our first plan was to use the name for God that the trios employed. And we searched and searched for the name, and finally we came up with Padu Padua, that was the name of their God. And we were going to use that name in the scriptures when we translated for God. But we discovered that Padu Padua had created the world, and then he got into a boat and rowed off and left the world to its own ends. And besides, he was a very immoral, drunken sort of a fellow, so we couldn't use Padu Padua. <laughs> so we had to use God. That was a neutral term into which we had to pour a lot of content. We had to teach them about God. And we could explain that Padu Padua went off and left you, but God is near to you. But... But uh, Claude said, had we been able to find an appropriate name for God, 
in the trio language, we would have used it. Because it doesn't matter what name you give to God. What matters is the content that you pour into that name. And apparently Zeus in the Greek pantheon was the high god, the uncreated god, who did seem to care about people. And so Paul thought it was appropriate to use his name. Interestingly enough, when the Septuagint writers, the Jews who first translated the Old Testament into Greek, were considering the name for God, they considered using Zeus instead of Theos, the, the other word for God, because Zeus is so similar in his character, his activities to the God of, of Scripture. And that's what Paul is doing. Let me ask you a question. Could you quote one of the classical poets? Could I? To a group of Athenians, where did Paul get that information? He read. He read what people in secular society were writing. He understood people who lived in the world. He had an awareness of the world and the way secular society uh, thought. He didn't hold himself aloof from people. And he was able to argue from their, from their literature. Now, I don't have time. My time is gone to comment on the rest of the uh, message. Let me simply read it. If then we are the children of God, we ought not to imagine God in terms of gold or silver or stone contrived by human art or imagination. He argues from the character and nature of man. Man is created in the image of God. Man lives and moves and exists. Therefore, God must live and move and exist. How absurd, it, he says, then it is to try to represent God through wooden uh, idols are through pieces of, of stone. It's ridiculous. He said, if you just think the thing through, if you're rational, you'll realize that, that idolatry not only degrades God, it degrades man. And now he says, while it is true that God has overlooked the days of ignorance. Isn't that interesting? Thinking back over six centuries of Greek classical thought, uh, the, 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 most of our Western thinking comes right out of that period. Our political system, our educational system, our legal system, our, our Western way of thinking, our cause and effect approach to things, all of that came out of the Greek classical period. And Paul says it's a time of ignorance. It's a time of darkness. You were groping along trying to find God. He's not saying these people didn't have brilliance. He's saying that they, they had the wrong instrument. You can't find God through your mind. That's not how you know Him. You know Him, he says, by repentance. You have to change your mind about God. <clears throat> now, while it is true that God has overlooked the days of ignorance, He now commends, commands all men everywhere to repent, to change their mind about the God who is here. For He has fixed a day on which He would judge the whole world in justice by the standard of a man whom He has appointed. That this is so, He has guaranteed to all men by raising this man from the dead. What everyone thought might happen was going to occur. Everyone has, I think, in their minds some feeling that there really is a God and someday there is going to be a comeuppance. There's an accounting. There's a day of judgment. And we just can't get away from that. There's that nagging certainty that somewhat, sometime we're going to have to stand before God. Paul says, you're right. But that judgment will not come from a God from Olympus, but from a man, a man whom he raised from the dead. And I believe at this point Paul was going to go on to preach Jesus and the resurrection as he had in the marketplace, but the place just came unglued. And his audience heard Paul talk, 
about a man being raised from the dead, some of them laughed outright. If he had spoken of the immortality of the soul, they could have handled that because most Greeks, with the exception of the Epicureans, believed that the soul lived on. But when he talked about the resurrection of the body, that was too much. They scoffed. They laughed. Others said, we should like to hear you speak again on this subject. They put it off. They delayed any sort of decision, as so many people will do. They're always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth because they don't commit themselves to what they know is true. So with this mixed reception, Paul retired from their assembly, yet some did in fact join him and accept the faith, including Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, one of these scholars, one of the fifty, began to associate with Paul, and he learned more of the man whom God raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus, and he believed in him, and a woman by the name of Damaris and some others as well. And there was left behind a small group of believers, of which we know absolutely nothing. No letter was written to the book of Athens. We don't know what happened to them. One of the early church historians says that Dionysius became the first pastor of that church. But we don't know what happened to those people. Seems like Paul was very ineffective. Did he fail? Some people believe that uh, because later he said in, to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that he was second-guessing himself in Athens and saying, I should not have philosophized, I should have just preached the gospel. But I don't think so. I think Paul was right in his approach to the Athenians. He hit his target. But as Paul elsewhere says, we are both a savor of life unto life and death unto death. There were some to whom he smelled like life itself because they were looking for truth. But there were others who were merely confirmed in their death-like state because they rejected the truth that he proclaimed. And he had therefore carried out his assignment in Athens. That's all he could do is proclaim the truth and let people decide if they wanted to respond to the truth or not. There are a couple of observations I'd leave behind. One is that despite what people are inclined uh, to show you up front, down inside, people are looking for something. They may not even call it God. They may not even realize that it's a spiritual quest. They just realize that there must be something more to life or there must be someone more to life. There's an itch inside that they can't scratch. As the uh, philosopher in, in the book of Ecclesiastes says... God has placed eternity in the heart of man. We just know that we're creatures of eternity, that nothing in this life, no material thing, ultimately will, will satisfy us. And there's that, that inward yearning for something more. Will you keep that in mind when you look across the street at your neighbors who seem to have it so much together, who seem to have no needs, that down under, underneath there is a real hunger for something more? And that's a point of contact. Secondly, we need, like Paul, to be bold in our proclamation. Paul says in another place in Romans, as you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God and the salvation. He says, I'm not ashamed of it because it's the only thing that can save people. I don't know anything else that will take people out of their darkness and their hunger and their need and their yearning for God than a proclamation of the gospel. The third thing I would say is that we really need to know the world. Jesus was a friend of sinners, and we need to become acquainted with people in secular society. The worst sort of Christianity is a, is a kind of hot house environment where we just 
are stunted and we don't grow. We need to get out into the great out of doors where people are, out into the streets, in the marketplace, and proclaim the gospel there. And we need to understand how people are thinking. Paul apparently read the Greek classics. I think that's what he's referring to when he says to, to, uh, to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy, bring the, the documents and the parchments. The documents were probably the Greek classical writings. Paul was a student of secular society. He understood them. He knew how they thought. He wasn't afraid of secular facts. When Hebrews tells us that Jesus was separate from sinners, it doesn't mean that he was spatially separate from them. It means that he was morally separate. He was unlike them in character, but he was with them, in fact. And we need to be with them. We need to make friends with those in the non-Christian world. We need to understand them. We need to read what they're reading. Not There's some things we probably can't read, but to the extent, extent that we can, we need to be aware of what people are thinking in the world so we have a point of contact. Don't run from the world. Don't be intimidated by the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in, in the world. And the final thing I would say is that regardless of the reaction we get from non-Christians, we need to be gracious and loving and courteous. Those are people whom God loves and to whom he's very near. It, it strikes me when I read through this account how courteous Paul was in the face of uh, their scoffing and their cynicism. He is a real gentleman, and we must be as well. It's never right to be harsh. Paul could have called a spade a spade. He could have said, "Ah, oh, you guys are just a bunch of dirty old idol worshipers, and you swap wives, and you smoke dope, and, you know, and just let them have it. But he didn't. He says, gentlemen, I perceive that you have a heart for God. That's where he began. I had a man call me up last night. I don't know who he is. He doesn't go to this church. I don't even know his name. But he told me that he called uh, Bill Edlin, my uh, fellow column writer. And uh, he said to Bill, I just wanted to call you up and say goodbye. And Bill said, w what do you mean, goodbye? And he said, well, I just want to tell you that I'm going to heaven and you're going to hell. And I wanted to say goodbye before I left. <laughs> And I just winced inside. Boy, that is not the way to do it. <clears throat> Paul said the servant of God must not be argumentative, but patient with all men, gentle, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If, perhaps, God will grant them repentance from Satan, who has taken them captive to do his will. I've said it many, many times. Non-Christians are not the enemy. They are the victims of the enemy. And if they are to be one at all, it's through truth spoken in love. We need to be courteous in our demeanor, regardless of the reaction that we get from the non-Christian world. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. <laughs> Father, like the truth that went out into the city of Athens and dispel darkness on that day 1,900 years ago. We ask that the truth would go out through us into our city. We pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel. We pray that we would see people as they really are and feel not contempt for them, but compassion and tenderness. Help us to view them with the um, mercy and the love with which you view them. And help us, Lord to get to know people around us 
and understand them, but more importantly, to make you known to them. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.